0: Hi it's Sofia Amaruso, founder and CEO of Girl Boss and you're listening to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's very special episode of Girl Boss Radio. You may or may not know, but in a few days, on March 8th it will be International Women's Day. I know it could seem like there are a lot of these quote unquote holidays or special moments marked on our calendars, but this one is especially important and that's because it's an opportunity for all of us to pause and reflect on the progress we've made towards gender equality. And it's also a time for us to talk and think about how we can continue making progress for women's rights. Which is why on today's show, I wanted to chat with a woman who has made it her mission to help other women reach success. Her name is Dee Poku Spaulding, and she's the founder and CEO of an organization called WE. WE is an influential membership network and platform for women leaders from around the globe. Dee founded WE back in 2010 as the WE Symposium, and it was one of the first modern conferences focused on giving women the tools to succeed in their careers. Since then, WE has attracted numerous business and cultural leaders to its events. We're talking people like Diane von Furstenberg, Nancy Pelosi, Naomi Campbell, Melinda Gates, and so many more. You also hear from your fellow listeners about their tricky work situations. We asked some of you on Instagram about moments you've experienced gender discrimination at work, and you told us how you've been ignored by male colleagues or not included in meetings and so much more. So we talk about that, and Dee gives us some advice on how she would handle it all. All right, let's get to it. Here's my conversation with D.
1: D, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here.
0: And this is a very special episode of Girl Boss Radio because International Women's Day is coming up on March 8th. And D, someone that I have met and spoken to and with alongside, I guess, many times both in Cannes. Sounds super fancy. Very glamorous. Um, Seen you at a bunch of real cool conferences, business people stuff. I like to start at the top of everybody's career. And I want to, you know, I want to learn about, you know, how you became the D that you are today and how we began and your career and um, entertainment. But we all have a start. And For some of us that start our first jobs in college, out of college, but for most of us, we had like a some kind of crap job, like some crap job in high school or middle school. It could be babysitting, could be working in an ice cream shop or being a lifeguard. Did you have any early
1: crap jobs, Dee? Yeah, I mean, a couple I can mention. Um, I mean, my first sort of real job that was a crap, also a crap job was working for a bakery, um, and I don't think I had a true understanding of what calories meant when I worked in that bakery. Um, and so I looked very different when I stopped working there from when I went in. Um, and uh, yeah, it, was, uh, it wasn't it was a particularly inspiring experience, but I learned about calories. Um, and then I, um, just sort of an interesting segue, but then I worked in fashion, um, which was my first job out of college. And that was a really difficult experience. And I believe the fashion industry has changed a lot now, but certainly, you know, in, when I was um, working for this company and, and our main client was Fashion Week, I think that the way, and it was very female dominated, the way that women sort of demonstrated power was, was by um, being mean to anyone who was lower down the totem pole than they were. And so there was just a lot of um, screaming and condescension, um, which I was very unused to. And I um, worked actually at London Fashion Week. I was sitting on uh, the reception desk as the sort of lowliest of the low um, uh, sort of assistants. And everyone used um, that opportunity to scream at me. So every designer, every model, every journalist, everybody really who had a grievance or complaint um, took it out on me. Um, So I would sort of work at that desk all day fielding everyone's complaints and then I would go back to the office and stuff envelopes um, and then sort of come back for more the next day. And um, I didn't last very long doing that. I mean, doing that. I I love fashion, but that was just not my place. No, I mean, I can
0: just (laughs) see your big, like beautiful eyes staring up at people like, like, why me? What is this?
1: Why me? I know. But you know, I have to say that, you know, as someone who was sort of fresh out of college, you'd never really had a stressful or pressurized work experience, it did build my resilience. And I don't think anyone has anything has been as tough since. I've never really undergone that amount of level of stress and in, in such a concentrated period. So I, you know, I would say that it, built my backbone. I wouldn't recommend it as a way to get started, but um, certainly, I think I deal with stress um, very evenly and calmly, because I don't think it, it could ever get worse than that. Fashion will do that to you. For So for <laughs> those
0: of you listening who have a crap lowly job in fashion, it gets better. Yeah. You're, you're paying your dues. The, I am living proof. <laughs> no, no, very kidding. Um, yeah. And then you got a Bachelor's of Science in Math. Yeah. Okay, fashion, math, then you went into marketing, now you run, okay, math, why math?
1: Well, you know, I have um, African parents, immigrant parents, I think, and I think anyone who has immigrant parents will agree with the fact that, you know, they want you to get a solid job, so nothing um, that feels too arty or airy-fairy. They want you to be one of a doctor, lawyer, or doctor. Um, and they want you to have a solid degree that will take you through life. And I have a better understanding of that now. Um, But at the time, I think I was a little bit resentful because I wanted to be a dancer, actually. Um, But I went to university, and I um, I actually went to university to study engineering, and I dropped out of engineering and swapped to math, which was marginally better. Um, My engineering uh, group was heavily male-dominated, I think, there were maybe a couple of women, and I was certainly the only person of color, um, and I just didn't feel particularly at ease in that environment, and so I swapped to math, which was a little bit better. Um, but it was just really me um, in the process of you know, finding myself and figuring out who I was and what I wanted to do. So I think in those early stages, I was really sort of bouncing around doing what other people wanted me to do. And math somehow led you to what you wanted to do, which, after that, became marketing. <laughs> <laughs>
0: tell me, tell me, crazy <laughs> lady.
1: You know, I mean, I, I, you know, I would just say to anyone who is trying to find their passion, um, you know, this that that's the process. Really, is um, you know, just going after the things that feel right in the moment, rather than trying to figure out the perfect thing. Um, and eventually sort of leads you to the place you're supposed to be in, which for me was film. So it was specifically film marketing. So I started in math, I went into fashion, and then I landed a job um, in the film industry. And then, you know, that's when I realized I'd sort of found my place. And um, specifically marketing just actually brought in all of the different sort of components of me, because I think to be a marketer, certainly you need to understand... Numbers and manage budgets and be strategic. And I was those things. But there's also um, within film and within marketing, you know, a strong element of creativity, which was also, a, you know, a big part of who I was. So um, film marketing really married all of those different things together. And so I finally sort of found my place. And you
0: worked with people like Taraji P. Henson, Brad Pitt, Angelina Jolie, alongside. Some of the most amazing actors of our time, you worked on Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, No Country for Old Men, Lost in Translation. What did you, I mean, you were exposed to such, such huge talent and such huge projects. What was that like early in your career to, I mean, was it as glamorous as it sounds when everybody moves to Los Angeles?
1: (laughs) Were you in Los Angeles? You were in Los Angeles. I I was, I was. I was in New York and then, and then Los Angeles. I mean, you know, it was glamorous. And I think, you know, particularly early on in my career, it was, you know, I was, I felt incredibly lucky and grateful um, to work with these people to do something I loved. I traveled a lot to film festivals. Um, I actually remember going to Cannes with Brad and Angelina who were two of the nicest people you'll ever meet by the way um often the mo- more famous they are the nicer they are it's the up and coming ones who are still who are still sort of coming into their fame who are like <laughs> you know do that um, Our producer and, Lauren is nodding at me, saying, "Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. Yes. I've work.
0: I've worked with a lot of them. She's, she's right. produced a lot of celebrity podcasts. So.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the, you know, the. I guess maybe you know, they've sort of had a bit more time to settle into their fame, and and they're just a bit more gracious. And so yeah, Brad and Julia are actually my favorite celebrities to work with. Um, and so yeah, I mean, it was great. I think it's interesting because you know, you do, you, when you're working in in an environment like that, because you're kind of grateful, you forget that you also are contributing something to the mix and maybe you're more accepting of things um, that aren't right than you should be. So I was, you know, I was working in the film industry and, you know, certainly in the heart of the the worst of Me Too. And, um, and you know, I remember one of the first... Um, Piece of advice I was given by someone was like, if you meet Harvey Weinstein, don't go into a room with him. Wow. And so, you know, so that was definitely around. But there were a lot of powerful men throwing their weight around. um, And it wasn't just sexual harassment, there was an incredible amount of bullying going on. Um, And so I'm thrilled to see um, that women have spoken out and that some of these men are being called to account because I felt um, as a young woman um, early on in my career that I didn't necessarily have a voice. And I certainly experienced a lot of the sexual harassment and bullying that um, is now sort of out in the public domain. But I said nothing because I didn't necessarily know who to speak to and how. And so I was really sort of balancing that component of, of being in the film industry with some of the more wonderful elements of Um, working on movies I loved, movies that were changing the world, movies that were changing lives like Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth, like such a wonderful film that really moved the needle um, on climate change um, and really sort of served as a call to action and got people sort of talking and focused on that issue. And, you know, he was so great to work with. And so to to be able to work on movies that um, had something to say Um, and I, you know, really truly believe in the power of content, um, as, um, as a conduit for change. I think people watch movies, watch documentaries, and it's much easier to sort of get messages across through that medium. And it can really sort of, um, activate people in a way that, um, is harder when you're just sort of telling them what's wrong and asking them to change. Yeah, once you entertain people and make them laugh, it's easier to
0: introduce something subversive. And then they like you, but then they're like, this is uncomfortable. And then they're like, wait, this seems really human. Okay, we're friends. I I can accept this, right? Yes. Um, Maybe not that simple. I think marketing is another example of that, right? You can market a product, you can market a message. And to be able to market things that you really believed in like an inconvenient truth, must have felt like, you know, it felt it kind of feels like Robin Hood sometimes being like, okay, Stella Artois, Coca-Cola, are these big brands, you know, we're gonna work together, but I'm gonna put your money behind something really important. Is that what it felt like working on these projects?
1: Yeah, it really did. It felt like, you know, as a studio, you know, we were great marketers and obviously we had the budgets um, to be able to, reach wide audiences, but then we had these products where we could work with nonprofits and with um, um, social justice groups to help them further their messages. And so when we were in a position where the two could meet, like another great example was working with Ang Lee on Brokeback Mountain, and that was, you know, with Heath Ledger, and like, that was really groundbreaking, again, to have two gay characters um, in a mainstream movie. And that was a, you know, a really sort of rewarding experience just to sort of, from a marketing standpoint, we positioned it as a love story. It was a simple love story. It was about two people who wanted to be together, two star-crossed lovers. Everyone can relate to that. And it was irrelevant, you know, what their sexuality was. It was really about, you know, how they felt about each other. And so we really tried to bring that to the fore in the way that we marketed the movie. And, um, And again, it was a huge success.
0: And so all the while in the background, this industry is not living up to the kinds of ideals that it's expressing on the screen, which must have been really perplexing and difficult to navigate. Were there moments in that world where you can remember something happened that was like, wow, I really can't endure this anymore. This isn't completely inappropriate
1: yeah. I mean, there were so many. <laughs> I definitely remember, hope he's not listening, a former boss um, sitting at a, 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 a group, you know, a staff meeting. And um, I remember my boss um, punching his assistant in front of us. Um, that was weird. I've heard um, a lot of that in entertainment, people throwing things. Yes. I saw lots of throwing things, um, people taking off shoes and throwing them at people. Um, obviously, you know, sexual harassment. Um, I remember actually working with a filmmaker we were at a festival and I had to, he was late. And so I had to just run up to his room and knock on the door just to get him to come down. I sort of called up and said, I'm coming to get you. And I got to the door and he sort of opens the door, um, with a, a robe on that was open. Oh. Um so that was unpleasant. Wait, did he have boxers on under it? There was it was it was open, there was nothing on. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I'm laughing nervously. People um, just have no sense of decorum. I mean I think that's like an <laughs> understatement. Yeah. I mean it was incredible what, you know, how much people were getting away with and just, you know, and just how silent everybody was. Do you feel like the Me Too movement
0: has changed entertainment? You know, you're not working deep in the entertainment industry anymore, but friends of yours that are working there, like, do you feel like the voices that have come to the table with these stories of these awful, awful men have made change inside businesses or just
1: brought to light what happens? No, it it definitely has it has changed the business. I actually spoke to a friend who was working for a different former boss who was a bit of a a screamer and and she told me that he, you know, on a couple of occasions had raised his voice and had been, you know, taken into a room and and, um, cautioned uh, by HR, I guess, that that behavior wasn't acceptable. And i i like that would not have happened in my time. And so I do think that some of the more sort of egregious elements of, sort of screaming and sexual harassment have been reined in because um you know, they're just more obvious. I think the subtler um negative elements of the film industry, the sexism, the sort of more um um unconscious bias and and sexism and um uh, and racism still exists. Uh, There are still very few women, um, you know, at the top of the studios. There are certainly um, a a fraction of people of color um, in positions of power. Um, You know, there are still very few, you know, women directors. Obviously, we just saw um, with the Academy Awards and various other awards how few And women directors were recognized, or not even how few, how none of them were recognized. And there were some incredibly brilliant female-helmed movies this year that somehow were ignored. Um, And so I think that we're still living in a time where men get to say what's art, what has value, what's good. And so just because something doesn't relate to them or they don't, sorry, just because they don't relate to a topic or a subject matter, they get to decide that it, you know, does, is not deserving of recognition. And that's still wrong. So we still need to diversify behind the scenes. We need to diversify, you know, BAFTA and AMPAS, and we need to diversify the studios. And um, But we not only need to diversify them, but we also need to empower those Um, who managed to make it into the halls of power to make decisions. So it's not just enough to have a woman in a senior position, but she also needs to be empowered to make the decisions that change the environment. Because what often happens is that, you know, they let one person in. And then, but it's still quite hard when you're not very supported to actually do anything, which I see a lot of. So you experienced
0: this really exciting time in film, and also these nightmarish experiences on the inside of this industry and at, se- at some point shifted into WE, which is an influential women's leadership network. I would
1: love for you just to tell me about how that idea came about and what is WE? WE stands for Women, Inspiration and Enterprise. It is a, um, a platform network for women in leadership. Um, The goal is to give women um, both the tools and community to succeed. And it was really uh, created to address two things. One was the lack of community that I had when I was navigating the workplace and navigating corporate culture. So I was experiencing all of these things, but I had no one to talk to about them. So I had no one to ask. I didn't necessarily feel that there was a sisterhood that existed that would catch me Um, when I fell. And so we was created to address that need and create that um, support mechanism outside of the workplace. And also, um, so it began as a conference. So it was also created to address the lack of diversity at traditional business conferences. So, you know, when I looked around me at all of the conferences I loved and wished I could go to, either they were completely out of my price range, um, or they were just so heavily male dominated in terms of who was on the stage and who was in the audience. And so they just weren't speaking to women or to people of color. And so WE was created to really sort of fill that space. And you've,
0: you started as the WE symposium, and now today have you have both the other festival, you have regular events with WE. Tell me how it is that you're bringing WE out into the world and how you've cultivated this incredible audience that you have today.
1: So I'm, you know, I'm I'm a people person. <laughs> you know, I love the reason I build communities is because I just love being around people. Like, I am not a loner. I don't particularly <laughs> like being by myself. I'm my happiest, just sort of with a group of people, just connecting. And so I've, you know, really sort of found the perfect place for me. And so as I started to build out this community, I was just very close to the people who were in it. And I was listening to who they were, how they were evolving, what was missing for them, what was next for them. And so, you know, we began as this conference and was very um, focused on supporting women in corporate culture, really. That was sort of the initial aim, was like for women like me. And then what I started to see was that women were actually becoming more entrepreneurial. And so lots of them were either deciding, you know what, I don't even want to go into corporate culture. I, I have ideas, and I'm gonna go make them happen or they got fed up of the traditional workplaces and decided to leave and, and build their own businesses. And so the other festival was created then to support that and um, was about creating a platform for women makers and creators to give them the tools um, and support that they needed. Um, and then most recently, uh, last early last year, I created Black Women Raise that was drilling down deeper um, to support black female founders. I'm a black female founder and um, I have friends who are incredibly talented, educated, innovative, you know, all the things, tick all the boxes and still can't raise money still can't get access to finance. and still shut out of Silicon Valley. And so I wanted to, you know, I'm not really, I never really, um, I'm never a sort of bystander when I see injustice, I want to do something. And so I created Black Women Raise as a way to support specifically black female founders and to help them both scale their businesses and raise money to grow. Um, and to really sort of call out the industry um, and to call out Silicon Valley and 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 um and have them sort of recognize the issues and do something about it. And so these were all created in response to, you know, what I was seeing around me and just really evolving, you know, we to meet the needs of my community.
0: And less than, just for our listeners who don't understand the why here, I mean, I think (laughs) it's pretty glaringly obvious, but specifically less than 1% of venture capital dollars go to women of color.
1: Correct. And yet black women are creating businesses at 1.5 percent, by 1.5 the national average. So they are building all of these great businesses but somehow um, cannot raise the money to grow them. And a big part of this episode is International Women's Day. And to you,
0: what does this day mean? Why is this an important day for us to celebrate?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's always interesting that, you know, as International Women's Day is coming up, when I look at my Instagram, there's inevitably the meme that's like, you know, International Women's Day should be every day. We should support women every day. And I completely recognize that. Um, Women make up half the population. We are half the workforce. Um, You know, we are not a minority and, um, and we should have um, an equal say in how um, our world is run, um, but I think that the reason that having a specific day dedicated to this is really about the the psychology of how people work. So, if you've ever worked in the nonprofit sector or worked with people in that space, like they hone in on these specific days because you know, as we talked about earlier, it's very hard to speak to these issues and share statistics every day. People just start zoning out. And so if you want to sort of focus attention um, very specifically on um, the injustices that we see in our world, it can be very helpful to focus your campaign and your marketing and and all of your activity around like one specific day or month. Um, and so it's just like, it's just an, a, a great time to get companies to sort of re- um, calibrate and just look at their, um, uh, look at their sort of growth and look at their targets and see how they're doing to get the public to really sort of re-recognize the issues that women face navigating the workplace um, and, and, and sort of issues beyond. And so that's really why International Women's Day is important. It's just like a, a reminder to the world at large that these issues still exist and we have to remember to focus on them.
0: I have a little announcement. So, if you're listening to Girl Boss Radio, you're already part of the Girl Boss family. But if you want to be a bigger part of it, here's your chance. We are looking for our very first set of Girl Boss Ambassadors. That's right, we have a program here at Girl Boss called Girl Boss Ambassadors, and it's where people like yourself are able to spread the Girl Boss gospel in cities across the United States. I've heard from so many of our listeners and community members about how you want to be more involved with all things Girl Boss. And this is your chance to bring Girl Boss to your city. As a Girl Boss Ambassador, you'll have the opportunity to organize meetups, events, dinners, you name it, let's do it. It's your chance to flex your event planning skills and connect with other women like yourself face to face. And not to mention, as a Girl Boss Ambassador, you'll get plenty of perks like a VIP pass to the upcoming Girl Boss Rally, an inside scoop on all things Girlboss, and we'll share our love for you back on social media. All right, I'm almost out of time. If you want to learn more, head to ambassador.girlboss.com and apply. Applications close Wednesday, March 11th. Again, that's ambassador.girlboss.com. Apply now, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. So... I have a few statistics here. It's going to take 202 years to close the global economic gender gap at the rate we're currently working. Uh, Women only represent 5% of CEOs at Fortune 500 firms. Women earned less than 81 cents for every dollar a man earned, and that's even lower for women of color. And in 2018, only 256 women ranked among the world's Two thousand two hundred eight billionaires. Not that being a billionaire should be the benchmark for success, but still, women control so little of the money in this world. Even the richest women in this world, um, and so we we pinged our network just to get examples more probably not from billionaires, examples from women in organizations who are navigating workplace culture. And I'm just going to, for for the listeners who might be entrepreneurs or even like me, who have had the privilege of not necessarily being in the corporate environment, um, I think it's really important to understand what most women are experiencing in the workplace. And so one of our listeners wrote in about the issue of getting left out of office discussions that were pertinent to her her position. So a colleague from the department came in. He wanted to chat for a while, and he ignored my presence, grabbed a chair, turned his back on me, and addressed directly the only two male PhD researchers in the room. And um, we just had Morgan from Blavity on the podcast, uh, and she essentially said that she's experienced the exact same thing—been completely ignored in a room. For our listeners who are experiencing this, and for for you know the women who walk into a room with a notebook along with uh, her male peers or even subordinates, and is seen as the person who should be taking notes. Like, what would your what would your advice be to, to someone who's experienced that kind of unconscious? or even possibly conscious bias in in those rooms?
1: I mean, as you were saying that, I was, was smiling wryly because I very much, I mean, I think it's one of like the worst elements of corporate culture is the, um, <clears throat> the closed circles and who gets CC'd on which email and who gets invited to which meeting and like... It's exhausting, the politics um, of navigating that. I I do not want to go back to that ever again. Um, And so, like, you know, I remember going through that with a boss who just kept leaving me out of meetings. And I would say that, you know, I look back on the way that I handled it and I would do it differently. I mean, I sort of, I was very sort of in her face about it. Um, So... You know, she was my boss, and um, I pointed it out. I, I I made it a big deal, and I think that you know, the advice that I would give you know, it varies according to who you are. If you are a you know a white male in those sorts of situations, you can navigate things differently. To you know, if you are a white woman versus a woman of color, and so there are nuances to how you do these things. And so what what works and what applies to one person might be very different for someone else. And so don't like all advice is not created equal. And I would say um, for me, you know, I would suggest being more subtle and more strategic about how you get around that situation. So rather than being in people's faces, really sort of take a step back and and really think about how for future meetings you can ensure um, that you are um, included. So you know, if you're in the room, listen to what was said, and um, you know, is there something that you could contribute? Do you have ideas? Um, Is there anything that you can say that might sort of um, uh, ensure that you are respected and that your presence is taken more seriously? Um, Speak to whoever you know was in the meeting. Um, Like whoever you are closest to, and find an opportunity to speak to them in a very non confrontational um, manner. Like, um, you know, I would, I was listening to to the conversation, it was so great. Um, I loved what you all had to say. Um, As someone who is coming up and who is, you know, learning, I would have, you know, really loved the opportunity to sit in on the meeting. I wonder what you think about that. Like, just think about how you want to address it so that you don't end up having the opposite effect of pushing that person away, particularly when it's your boss or someone in a position of power. Um, Because not, you know, not every, um, you know, like we're all human beings and um, there's good and bad that comes with that. And so not everyone is going to listen to your grievances in the spirit in which they were intended. And so really sort of, Use your your emotional intelligence to think about how to navigate the situation and who to speak to and when and how to get your desired result.
0: And a few more notes from our listeners. I was told I didn't get a promotion because I needed to quote unquote smile more. And my male boss told me to smile less to appear more dominating. I've heard women say, executives that have worked for me, that people have told them to pull their hair back so they don't look... So they look more serious in the meeting among men. Um, Someone else, one of our listeners, got asked her age in an interview. She was 29. And then the interviewer proceeded to grill her about whether she would get married soon and whether it might affect her work performance. And these are the kinds of things that dumb enough people say out loud, but so many of them are also thinking that we have no idea we're navigating a world where those biases necessarily exist until sometimes they just come out of someone's mouth and I'm sure it can be really shocking. Um, In terms of how we can as employers, because I'm always looking to do better, what's the best way to make sure that you know, we all have unconscious biases, right? We all have our own unique experiences, um, and we can only learn and empathize so quickly what the experience of those who work with us and work for us are. What would your advice be to a leader? You know, work—you work with leaders so much to understand the experience, the unique experiences of their employees, given there's such. Such disparity and such a variety of experiences, sensitivities, and things you'll never know are happening, or people are feeling
1: within your culture. Sure, I think that there are there are the formal ways to get um, feedback from your employees, and there are the informal ways. And so, you know, most companies have reviews and opportunities for. Uh, their employees to come in and talk about how they're performing, how they're doing, to have a conversation about um, their progression, um, you know, what they're dealing with, all of those things. Um, it's rare that an employee, um, and certainly I think um, if it's a person of color, I would say, is is going to tell you everything, particularly if it pertains to, um, uh, you know, race-related bias that they're experiencing. They may or may not bring that up. And so I think as employers and as leaders, it's very important to find the informal opportunities to connect with your employees when they're um, more likely to sort of share things in a more sort of casual manner. So it's things like, um, you know, at office events, like really, like I used to have a boss who, um, a male boss who was actually one of, you know, my all-time greatest bosses, who would take the opportunity at every sort of office, informal gathering, party, Christmas party, to talk to the assistants and to all of the sort of more junior staff. Um, and just to kind of, you know, just just to chat and, and hear who they were and what they had to say. And he would glean so much information from those more informal settings than he would have if, if he had called them into the office for a more sort of, you know, formal sit down. So I would suggest, you know, it's things like um, trips away. And like, for let's say you have office retreats. There's the retreat setting, but then there's like the journey to the setting. And like, can you chat on a plane? Can you chat while you're waiting for your flight to take off? Or um, like, just find the moments um, to connect in a more organic way with your employees and I think that you'll find out so much more about um, what's really sort of going on um, inside than you would just kind of in the more sort of direct. And connecting setting.
0: people on a with people on a personal level, right? It's like, you can talk to, you know, it's like, especially when you're the boss, you can walk to coffee with someone on your team and And talk about work, but when you actually get to know people and understand what's happening in their lives and their perspective on work from who they are as a person, it becomes a different conversation and they have permission to talk about um, and be vulnerable with their experience in the workplace in ways that had you not gotten to know them on a personal level, I don't think they would necessarily offer up. Um, I get a lot of coffees with our team and it's (laughs) one of my most, it's one of my favorite things that... I do with our team and it's just, it's coffee. I like coffee anyway, Um, but just hearing, you know, and it it changes week to week, the experience of people working in our company and, you know, hopefully they don't sugarcoat it for me. And often I hear things that, you know, the team or I, or our, our culture really need to work on. And, you know, there's plenty of challenges that come along with navigating a startup, but when everybody vocalizes it, especially to leadership, that's the only way that leadership can do to do better. Uh, and change those things because we can be very disconnected from the day to day of, you know, what it's like to work in our own companies.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I would also say that ad- as leaders, I think it's also important to um, communicate in, um, in the things that we say and, and and the things that we do, what's okay. So I think that if we give permission to our employees to be vulnerable by being vulnerable ourselves, then we're more likely again, um, to c- create an environment where that's, that's more open. So I heard, um, a great, uh, Mary Callahan Erdos, who, um, is CEO of, uh, JP Morgan asset management spoke at one of my events. And I remember her talking about, um, noticing that around three o'clock, a lot of her female employees would have these like mysterious appointments um, and then she realized that they were all going off to do the school run and to pick up their kids from school. And so, but they just weren't telling anybody cause they didn't think it was okay. And so she started doing it. So she would announce very loudly, I am off to take my kid to the doctor. I'm off to pick up my kid from school. And by doing that, she then made it okay. And she gave permission to everybody else, um, to do the same. Um, so I think it's also modeling the behavior that you are expecting mm-hmm. um, as leaders is is really important, and just a you know
0: and at every level, not just as leaders. When someone's when someone leaves for the week and doesn't answer my emails at eight p.m. on a Friday, as much as I would love for them to, I really respect that they're not. And at a certain point, I've been trained. Just well, I'm not going to get a response, and I accept it because. Um, it's never good to just bang on people's phones when they're trying to enjoy their family. You know, one of the two and a half days they get out of the week. Um, so there's a few questions that I ask everybody that come comes on Girl Boss Radio, uh, and and one of those things, and this is really pertinent to especially women because success has been and the workplace has been largely dictated and built by men. Right, this world wasn't built for us. Um, so what success means to us is still something that we're navigating in this new world um within the paradigm that has you know been built around us so redefining that for ourselves is incredibly important but also challenging and I I'm curious what success means to you right now
1: for me success is autonomy like it for me that's everything the ability to wake up on a monday morning um with you know the week stretched out ahead of me, and know that I have full autonomy to meet with whoever I want to, to um, take meetings or not take meetings according to how I feel. Um, um, you know, to do the things that make me happy, to spend time with my family as and when I want to. Like I think that um, it's something that I so many men get to take for granted just that ability to just be. Um, I think that you know women are just often making concessions and so we're never really doing the thing that we want but the thing that um, is making everybody else happy. Um, and so I think as, um, certainly as an entrepreneur, um, it's been a huge, it's made a huge difference to my life um to be able to just plan my day in the way that I want it to and to work with the people who I respect and who make me happy and who inspire me and um and and you know not to have a sort of feeling of dread when I walk into the office um or not worry about being you know spoken to in a condescending manner and um so I, for me that that freedom is is everything and we have this thing called girl boss moments. It's really
0: funny. I'm working on my next book, and uh, my boyfriend thinks that I should use the word girl botch. <laughs> so there's girl boss moments, and then there's girl botches, which might be a good thing to talk about—just failure and challenges. I'm not going to ask you about that right now, but I'm just introducing the concept. Um, we have girl boss moment is really a time in your most recent history where you're just really proud of something that you did for yourself for your business something that made you feel really good what was your most recent girl boss moment d oh
1: my lord <laughs> well <laughs> i think it was maybe it was on sunday and just doing nothing you know i am such an overachiever overdoer over everything like i am planning every minute every second of my day um even even when I'm doing nothing, I'm doing something. Um it's impossible for me to just relax. And um, on Sunday I actually did a bit of that. I um I, you know, I took some time and did nothing. Like, you know, I just sort of sat and um enjoyed my own company. And um, you know, my husband and my child were out and my instinct was to plan something and I ended up just kind of being lazy and being lazy for me is an effort so um that was that was great.
0: I think it can be for a lot of overachievers and people pleasers and parents and I'm sure um so for those of us who want to learn more about we and you where can we find you?
1: Sure so um, you can find out more about WE at our, on our website, wienetwork.org, or on social media at Wienetwork. Um, and we welcome women who are in leadership positions, whether they are founders or executives. And it's really all about creating a peer community um, of women who are invested in each other's success. Um, so there's an element of sort of peer coaching in it, um as well as you know the programming that we provide um, and the connections that we provide. But it's really about that sort of peer-to-peer support. Um, and I think, you know, as, you know, as with the wonderful work that you do with Girlboss, I think that the further up the ladder you go, um, the more it becomes about who you know um, and less about what you know. And I think it's so important for women to understand that and to take that um, concept on board um, from, you know, from, from the beginning of their careers, um, and, and, uh, and all the way up the chain, it's like build those relationships around you that are going to help you, um, ascend. Dee, thank you so much for
0: joining me on Girlboss Radio today. It's been such a pleasure to get to know you and I hope we can get some coffee or food next time I'm in New York or you're in Los Angeles, because I'd really love to spend more time together.
1: I would love that, and then you can. I can be vulnerable while we get coffee. Okay, me too. <laughs> Let's cry.
0: <laughs> That's our show for this week. I'm Sophia Marusso, your host, founder and CEO of Girl Boss. Thank you, Dee, so much for joining us here on Girl Boss Radio for a very special episode. Happy International Women's Day, everybody. And I hope you continue having these conversations with your coworkers, your best friend, with your partner, and everyone else. Also, thank you for downloading and streaming Girl Boss Radio every week. I really love seeing all of your comments on social, screenshotting the episodes, and posting them on stories, and tagging me, and tagging Girl Boss. So share, rate, review. We love you. I'll see you next week.